Welcome to Heads Up on Money, the heads up you need to make better financial choices. Hello, money nerds. Welcome to another episode of Heads Up on Money. We're continuing on our theme of last week, looking at financial planning for couples. In today's episode, we talk about considerations for married couples. Welcome again to the podcast. Thank you everyone for tuning in. As I outlined last week, this is a very brief three-part series on financial planning for couples. Now, as I mentioned last week, we gave a bit of an overview previously around couples who financially plan together, stay together. And it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, I know, but the idea behind that episode, if you haven't listened to it yet, do check it out, was to get money and personal finances out in the open when it comes to your other half. It's good for the relationship, it's good to be transparent, it's good to mention your anxieties to help alleviate them. But in this episode, we're focusing a little bit more on the financial side of things. Why is it good to look at things holistically as a couple rather than doing your own thing respectively? Now, today's episode, as I said, focuses on married couples. In next week's episode, we're going to cover how this dynamics change when it comes to cohabitee couples. And if you've not heard of that term before, that basically means you are in, for all intents and purposes, married couple, but you're not. Legally, you're not married, you're cohabitees. And as I'll talk about next week, you don't have many of the privileges, sadly, available to married couples. It's a bit of a major discrepancy in personal finance landscape is that cohabitees and a legal and financial perspective have a pretty crappy deal, let's be honest. Now, Coming up today, I'm going to talk about if you're a married couple, what are the financial benefits in being a married couple? Now, of course, getting married for financial reasons is not the most sensible idea, clearly. I would hope you'd be getting married for far more important reasons than your finances. But as I'll outline today, there are massive perks in being a married couple. Once you are legally married, it opens up a whole new selection of doors around good financial planning. And I'm going to go into a rundown today of some of the considerations that you should be thinking about as a newly married couple. Or if you've been married for some time, this is a good checklist for you to see. Are you aware of these things? And are you doing these things when it comes to your own financial planning as a couple? So I hope you're going to get value from this podcast Without further ado, there's a few things to be mentioned today and some of them are a bit more nitty gritty in nature. Let's get started. So number one, what is the benefit of marriage? From a financial perspective, number one, you can reduce your capital gains tax bills. Step back people, what is capital gains tax? So capital gains tax, as it sounds, is a gain on an asset. Now, capital gains tax is a bit more controllable. You've got a bit more discretion over it than the likes of income tax. When it comes to income tax, whenever you earn income, be it employment income, interest in your bank accounts, property rental income, as soon as that income is generated, it becomes liable to income tax. Now, whereas capital gains tax, you have discretion over when you sell an asset. 
be it a stocks and shares portfolio you might have or a residential buy-to-let property, you have say in terms of when you press the button and click sell on that asset. And as a result, you have control as to when the capital gains tax liability will become chargeable. Now, where marriage comes into it is that you can effectively pass assets between the two of you as a married couple without this giving rise to capital gains tax. So if you are a single individual, let's say, and you have, let's say, a general investment account portfolio, what do I mean by that, first of all? Well, in other episodes of the podcast, I might have talked about pensions or ISAs. Without getting into the detail of them today, they are basically tax-privileged wrappers. That's the way to think of these things, is they are basically the box in which you contain your investments. And these boxes, be it an ISA or a pension, have different rules applicable to them. Where a general investment account comes into it is that they don't have the tax privileges associated with ISAs and pensions. So typically, if you're using a general investment account, it means you've probably exhausted the allowances you have available to you when it comes to your pensions and ISAs. So general investment accounts come into play typically for more wealthy individuals because they've exhausted their ISA allowance, their annual pension allowance. So this is what a general investment account is. It operates in exactly the same way as an ISA and a pension. You can have similar investments within them. It's just the tax rules underneath the bonnet are different. So where does this relate to capital gains tax? Well, in a pension and an ISA, capital gains tax doesn't apply. They're tax efficient. Whereas if you've got A stocks and shares portfolio, let's say in a general investment account, if there is a gain in the value of that general investment account and you were to then sell it, there could be a potential liability to capital gains tax. Now again, we'll get into capital gains tax in more detail in another episode of the podcast. There are some caveats. You do have a capital gains tax exemption amount that's available to you to help offset the amount of this gain. But as you'll see if you read about this in the never-ending worry service that is the news, capital gains tax exemptions are going down, 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 which means even those individuals who may not consider themselves as, inverted commas, high net worth or, inverted commas, wealthy, will start to fall under the capital gains tax regime. So, going back to the story here, we've got a single individual who has a stocks and shares portfolio in a general investment account, It makes, let's say, 20 grand of growth over the long term because they've invested in the powerhouse companies of the world, equity investing, low-cost diversified portfolios, all the things I talk about every week. They've made a significant capital gains tax liability on that pot. So if this single individual presses sell, they will become liable to capital gains tax. Now, if they're a higher rate taxpayer, that can be pretty hefty. It can be 20%. If they're a basic rate taxpayer, it's lower, still significant amount, at 10%. Albeit these levels are lower than the income tax regime, and this is why in recent years and in the wake of the COVID crisis, there's been speculation as to whether capital gains tax rates will align with income tax rates, because at the moment, capital gains tax is significantly lower than income tax, but these can still be fairly significant tax charges. And as I said, exemptions applicable to capital gains tax are going down, 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 which means more people are being caught by these levels. 
There's also been a freezing of income tax thresholds, which means people who may have otherwise been basic rate taxpayers may be creeping into higher rate thresholds. And as a result, capital gains will fall into higher rates. So there's possible possibility here sorry, for fairly sizable tax hits. Now, where does this all relate to married couples? Well, a married couple can transfer these assets between one another without giving rise to capital gains tax. Now, that doesn't mean that capital gains tax just vanishes. It means that you can be strategic in your planning and pass an asset from perhaps a higher rate member of the couple to a basic rate taxpayer member of the couple. So let's take a couple for example. Let's say Mark and Sarah. Mark is a basic rate taxpayer, which means his gross yearly income is typically under £50,270. Now that's the UK tax rate. We've got different rates here in Scotland because we love to do things differently. They're more complicated than in the rest of the UK. So let's make this nice and simple. Let's assume UK tax rates, 50270 and below, they will be a basic rate taxpayer. Now his partner, Sarah, She's a higher rate taxpayer and earns 82 grand a year. Now, Sarah has a general investment account. She's made significant growth in the general investment account and she's looking to sell down. And as a result, as I've said, there could be a capital gains tax liability. Now, if Sarah wasn't married, she would have to take this capital gains tax hit at a higher rate of capital gains tax, being 20%. But... As a result of marriage, she simply passes the asset over to her partner, Mark. He then surrenders the asset and he pays 10% capital gains tax. So this lets you see how a married couple do have some perks available to them that simply would not be the case if you were a cohabitee couple. This principle can become even more valuable in the case of if you have a residential property or a buy-to-let. And the reason for that is that property transactions have their own capital gains tax rates. Remember I said previously 10 and 20%? Well, that doesn't apply to property. It's 18 and 28. Don't ask me why. That's what it is. Let's look at the example again. If Sarah, for example, had a buy-to-let property that she was looking to sell, and this is commonplace at the moment because of interest rates going up and buy-to-let mortgages are becoming very, very expensive, and the general income tax regime is fairly punitive for landlords. So let's say Sarah's done with being a buy-to-let landlord. She sells her property. She would pay 28% tax, capital gains tax, on that property. Profit, if we call it that. But if she's married, she passes that over to Mark and he can pay a lower rate of 18%. Financial savings in practice. Now, it's not just applicable to capital gains tax. Let's look at this through the lens of income tax. In the example of Sarah and Mark, let's assume her general investment account, first of all, that will be giving rise to typical dividend payments and interest payments. She will be paying income tax on these interest payments in terms of the interest in her general investment account at her marginal rate of income tax. And when you hear that phrase marginal rate of income tax, it just means these payments would be slotted in to the rest of her earnings and depending where that took her would determine sorry, which tax band she falls into. Now, I've got a separate podcast on this around the tax regime. Check that one out if you're interested. But looking at this example, the interest in that general investment account, Sarah would pay 40% income tax on that. Now, if she switched that general investment account over to her partner, Mark, as we know, he's a basic rate taxpayer. Well, he pays a much lower rate of income tax on that than her, typically 20%. That's another 
tax saving. And a similar applies for the buy-to-let property. If Sarah decided to retain that property, they continued to rent it out and she enjoyed a rental income from that. Moving the property from her name into Mark's name, which she can do as a married couple, would mean the tax liability, the income tax liability, reduces from 40%, in Sarah's case, to 20%. There you are, another tax saving in practice. Go married couples. And if that's not enough, there's another perk the government have given married couples, and it's called the, creatively named, marriage allowance. Now what this means is typically for lower earning couples, so let's take Mark and Sarah, put them to one side, and let's look at an example couple who say, one of them is a nil rate taxpayer, so they don't pay income tax, they earn below the personal allowance, £12,570 as a reminder, and the other member of the couple is a basic rate taxpayer. So recap, nil rate taxpayer and a basic rate taxpayer. Where does the marriage allowance come into this? Well, the basic rate taxpayer can effectively steal 10% of the personal allowance of the nil rate taxpayer. So a chunk of the £12,570 from the nil rate taxpayer goes over to the basic rate taxpayer. And it shouldn't be consequential because the nil rate taxpayer is not using their personal allowance anyway because they're not a taxpayer. So you get an additional tax-free allowance for the taxpayer. So 12570 plus another 10% before you start to pay income tax. This is not available to cohabitees. It's another freebie to married couples. Okay, so this is great, you're happy, you're saving on capital gains tax, you're saving on income tax, you've got the marriage allowance. What happens if you die? Well, married couples get another perk on death. Life and death, how generous. So yeah, I'm talking here about inheritance tax, IHT as it's called. Now inheritance tax is a very unpopular tax, that's for sure, because the idea is that you've already paid significant taxes in your life, why should the government be taking another payment from you when you die? Putting all those political animosities aside for one moment, let's look at the rules as they are. What is inheritance tax? So you pay a rate of 40% on your investments, your total net worth, your property when you die. Now it's not 40% of everything, you do have what's called the nil rate band. Just think of this as your IHT freebie, it's effectively your personal allowance when it comes to income tax that relates to inheritance tax. So you've got a freebie and it's fairly chunky. It's £325,000. Now we'll do another episode on the ins and outs of inheritance tax. There are other exemptions and allowances available to you which may reduce inheritance tax further. The main one being the residence nil rate band, which basically means if you have a property and you're leaving that to a direct descendant, typically children, you get another allowance available to you, typically £175,000. But let's keep this example really simple. Put all these exemptions to one side for a moment and just indulge me. Let's assume Jane is an unmarried woman and she dies with an estate valued at £600,000. She's got no children. So in this case, she would take off the nil rate band, the IHT freebie of £325,000 and she'd have £275,000 which would be subject to 40% income tax on her death. Youch, that is chunky. Okay, so what would happen now if Jane was in a civil partnership with her partner Amy? Well, if Jane's will provided that her estate was distributed to Amy on her death, being Jane's death, there would be no rise to inheritance tax on Jane's death whatsoever because her exemption basically passes over to her partner. So that's massive, is when Jane died, 
nothing would give rise to inheritance tax and instead Amy would soak up Jane's allowance and would be able to use that on her later death as well. So that's really, really powerful because as we'll see next week for cohabitee couples, if the first person dies, boom, there's a charge to inheritance tax straight away. Whereas in married couples, if you provide to one another and you're married and the assets pass to the married surviving partner, no rise to inheritance tax. Massive, massive saving. And it's arguably the biggest privilege and perk available to married couples. So going into some of the more minor benefits, but benefits all the same. First up, pension benefits. So when it comes to final salary pensions, defined benefit pensions as they're more generally known, quite often many of the occupational public sector schemes will have a provision that if you were to die, they will continue to pay normally a percentage of your pension to a surviving partner. And as you guessed it, quite often they're stringent around the partner has to be a spouse, so I need to be married or civil partnership. If you're a cohabitee, they don't recognise you as a partner and you don't get anything. So it's really disadvantageous for cohabitees in this regard. Next up, it's cleaner when one of you dies, particularly when it comes to around matters of the family home. Now this is getting into an intricate area of legal definitions and I am not a lawyer, but generally speaking, you can own a home in two different ways. They can be in joint names, as in joint tenants, or it can be tenants in common. And generally speaking, a married couple will purchase and hold a property with the advice of a solicitor under a joint tenant's name, which means if one of them dies, they both own the property collectively, so nothing happens. There's no risks of becoming homeless or that property going to children of the passed away partner. Obviously this is an intricate area of the law and you really do need to speak to a solicitor if your family situations are more complex but taking a simple example let's say Amy and Jane as civil partners they want to ensure that if one of them passes away the other will continue to enjoy continue to own the home in full. Well marriage makes this a lot easier and as I'll go into next week when it comes to cohabitees unless you've got really tight legal arrangements underpinning the purchase and share of a property it's a massive massive danger zone so stay tuned for that one next week if you are a cohabitee but all you really need to know the headline for a married couple is you're pretty safe when it comes to your property ownership other benefit is it's often just a lot simpler if you separate now obviously divorce and the division of financial assets is a complicated process i'm not undermining that but what I'm saying is in the eyes of the law obviously solicitors will debate this back and forth in their interests of their clients but you've got more rights available to you as a married couple compared with cohabitees as I'll mention next week it's really that idea that what's mine is yours applies far more under a marriage or civil partnership than it does under a cohabitation partnership. Now just finishing up with a side note on wills Again, I'm not a solicitor, but I always speak to my clients and ask them, do they have a will in place? Because a will is absolutely vital. And what you should be aware of is when you marry, any existing will that you have becomes invalid. So you do need a new one. And if you don't, what can happen here? Well, your entire estate could automatically be left to your spouse, which may be what you want. But if your situation is more complex and you've got children from a previous marriage that you'd like to benefit under the terms of your will, you need to be addressing this. So if you are married, is your will up to date? If you've just got married, 
get the will up to date, even if you've got an existing will in place, because things do become invalid. So that's just a heads up there. You do want to be speaking to a solicitor around that. And getting a will in place is worth its weight in gold, and it doesn't have to be as expensive as you think it is. And as I've alluded to, if you're a cohabitee couple, unless you've got a will that specifically mentions what you want to go to your surviving partner, they will be left with pretty much nothing and it becomes really, really messy and really complicated. So a will, as I said, is totally worth it. Okay, that was very speedy, but I didn't want to go into too much detail here, just giving you the salient points you need to know about. So, has that convinced you it's time to get married? Okay, covered quite a lot of ground there and appreciate you might need to listen back to some of those tax points that I raised. But what should you be taking away from today's episode? Number one, this in itself is not a reason to get married. Of course it's not. But it is important to be aware of these things, particularly if you are married. And if you've got an accountant or a financial planner who's looking at these things for you, make sure they're aware of these exemptions. They should be. And it's really important because it can result in fairly significant financial implications for you as a partnership. And as I mentioned last week, there are other considerations and benefits in terms of looking at your financial planning as a couple. But there's no doubt about it, on paper, in pounds and pence, and when it comes to crunching the numbers, married couples get a pretty sweet deal. So there we go. That's today's episode, episode 21, Considerations in Financial Planning for Married Couples. Next week, we're going to conclude this little three-part drama series and we're going to talk about cohabitees. What are the risks in terms of being a cohabitee couple and what are the perks that you don't get? You can broadly expect it's going to be the opposite of what we've covered today, but there's a few tips I'm going to include in there in terms of what you should be thinking about if you are cohabitees and how you can protect yourself a little bit. So thanks again for listening. Please leave me a review if you've enjoyed this one and share it with the married couples in your life so they're aware of these tax breaks and investment rules applicable to them. Last call from me, if you enjoy the podcast, please leave me a rating, a review, subscribe to the podcast so you get them delivered to your happy ears every week. To know that there are so many of you out there enjoying the podcast and getting real benefit from it is what it's all about and it really does mean so much to me. So thank you, money nerds. I will see you on next week's episode. Until then, look after yourselves. Goodbye.